You're listening to Jaipur Bites, the JLF podcast. I'm your host, Laksh Datta. This episode is a live session from JLF Adelaide, which happened earlier in November this year. It's called Present Tense, Way of the World, in conversation with James Crabtree, writers Peter Verghese, Shashi Tharoor, and Tony Birch examine social realities and the conflicts of today. about the intersection of global change and identity. Um, how can we describe some of the big picture changes that are happening in Asia with a particular focus on India and Australia? And how is that affecting our sense of ourselves as people? Uh, and how, in a sense, are changing identities affecting uh, the state of the world. And we're also going to talk a little bit about how that is going to be changed by a changing climate. And so to, to pick this through, uh, we have on the, the far left of the panel, Peter Varghese, presently a chancellor of the University of Queensland, but uh, an ideal person to have on this panel, given he had a storied career uh, in the Australian Foreign and Diplomatic Service, um, including recently writing a long-term review of the relationship between Australia and India and being uh, based in Delhi for a good period of time. Shashi Tharoor, uh, purveyor of tea delivery, uh, Indian parliamentarian. Recipient, not purveyor. Um, <laughs> recipient, that's right. Uh, and Modi's the purveyor, yes, of course. Um, uh, uh, Indian parliamentarian, polymath, irritatingly prolific author, and general, uh, general uh, uh, in intellectual powerhouse, and uh, in between them, representing the, the, the home authors team, uh, Tony Birch, author of the excellent uh, new book, The White Girl, uh, which you can buy outside, um, and Ghost River, amongst others, and also uh, working on climate justice at Victoria University. So let me, let me start with, let's start with the very big picture. If we're talking about changes and the changing world in Asia, Peter, can you given you are a geopolitical analyst, can you sort of sketch out for us what you see are these significant changes that are occurring around Asia that are having an effect on the way that people see themselves? Sure. Well, uh, thank you very much, uh, James and Sashi. It must be uh, pretty good to have uh, an Indian parliamentarian in delivery bracketed in the one sentence. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. God, very... this is starting off rather nasty. <laughs> Um, so when, when I look out on the, on the global outlook, um, if I can steal or adapt a phrase from Tom Wolfe, uh, I think we're facing a bonfire of certainties because so much of the world uh, that we became accustomed to after the Second World War is, uh, is disappearing. Uh, and in many ways, the last four decades for a country like Australia, and I think this applies more generally, have really been our salad days because we have had a combination of strategic stability and economic growth, which is now looking uh, a very unlikely combination uh, into the future. Um, we are, I think, close to a tipping point uh, in terms of the currents of geostrategy. Uh, I think there are a number of strands to that. 
the first is that uh, the so-called rules-based system or the multilateral system, really a creation of American leadership in the post-war, post-Second World War world, uh, is under severe strain and uh, arguably is on uh, life support, uh, not helped by the fact that the architects of the system uh, are now led by an administration which shows no real interest in it and, in fact, in many ways sees it as contrary to uh, a campaign to put uh, America first. Secondly, we are seeing now the development of uh, an intense geopolitical struggle uh, at the heart of uh, global geostrategy between the United States and China. Uh, and this reflects two irreconcilable strategic ambitions. Uh, the United States is determined to hold on to its position as the predominant strategic power globally as well as in this part of the world. Uh, and China is determined to become the predominant strategic power at the very least in the Indo-Pacific and possibly uh, beyond that. And so how this geostrategic tension is going to be managed and where it places countries like Australia and India and many others uh, is going to take a long time, I think, to, uh, to work through the system. Uh, and then the third element that I would uh, emphasize is that all of this is happening at a time when we're moving towards uh, a much more multipolar geopolitical environment. Uh, in Asia, uh, unusually uh, at the moment, we are seeing a number of strong Asian countries who are becoming stronger at the same time. And you've got to go back quite a long way in history uh, before you have seen that. So. If you take all of that together, I think um, this is going to be a very uncertain period. And in the background of all of this is an international trading system which is becoming weaker and therefore economic growth uh, is slowing. Uh, for the last couple of decades, trade ran at three to four times uh, the growth rate of uh, the global economy, and now, of course, uh, trade is, is slowing very considerably. You've got the rise of protectionism, you've got uh, the rise of populism and a different type of uh, nationalism. So the final observa observation I would make is that the last couple of decades has really been an economic narrative, an economic story, and by and large a successful one. The next couple of decades is going to be a political economy story and the way in which politics and economics come together or don't come together is going to be decisive in many of our countries. Regrettably, in my view, what that means is we're moving into a stage where uh, bad policy is good politics. So, there we are, you're a generous audience. Um, Shashi, could I ask you to sort of pick those themes up and, and give your sense of the big picture of the, the changing dynamics of Asia, and in particular, how India fits into this? So you, Shashi, as I said, has written many books. One of them written um, the best part of a decade ago was called Pax Indica, about India's view of the world, and I know that it's a little, uh, a little longer ago now, but maybe you could give us the, the sense of how this looks from India. 
Actually, I, you know, I'm just so delighted that Peter has delivered a perfect summary of my forthcoming book. <laughs> <laughs> Which I, which I might point out is likely to be one of three that Shashi will release next year. <laughs> this one is due in January, and it's called The New World Disorder and the Indian Imperative. So Peter has done the New World, World Disorder part perfectly. I couldn't have put it better. These are precisely the analyses we make. Uh, I say we because there's a co-author involved, Samir Saran of the Observer Research Foundation. And um, the only thing is, at the end, we do talk about the potential for India to make a worthwhile contribution to this new world disorder and help get it back in order. Um, so on the big picture, I think Peter's absolutely right. I think we are seeing uh, America in retreat. We are seeing it, it getting more protectionist, the trade wars being an example of that. We are seeing two currents of backlash against the globalization that sees the world between about 1980 and 2008. Um, and the first backlash is clearly a, an economic backlash, particularly in the developed countries. Uh, people who see their jobs or the jobs they grew up expecting to take over from their parents uh, suddenly being exported to Shanghai. Uh, and, and, and there is an, an understandable backlash against that. But there's also a cultural backlash, which we see most uh, vividly in Western Europe and is exemplified by Brexit. Uh, the sudden waking up to a more cosmopolitan world in which you have a, a lot of foreigners amidst you and speaking other languages and looking very different. And, and, and some people have, have pushed back against that. And in that tumult, you've also got, as Peter rightly pointed out, a, um, a, uh, uh, an increasing protectionism. The very countries that sold the likes of us on the virtues of more trade, uh, uh, less uh, uh, impermeable borders, uh, more transactions across geopolitical lines. Those very countries are now turning more protectionist, are trying to protect their jobs, are trying to uh, uh, con conduct trade wars, all of that. So everything that, that Peter says is right. The, 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 the cultural backlash um, and the economic backlash sometimes go together uh, and sometimes don't. So um, part of this cultural backlash has been a reassertion of nativism, of, of, of populist nationalisms in many countries. Uh, by people who claim to be the more authentic representatives of the essence of their nations. Um, and these include people like Trump with his Make America Great Again, which really the subtitle was Make America White Again. Uh, which it's, not going to, it's not going to happen, but that was part of his appeal. Um, but uh, you also have people like Erdogan in Turkey and Modi in India who have written the crest of this anti-cosmopolitan message in their domestic politics, but who don't want to expel Davos man, they want to be Davos man. And, and they're still, therefore, not part of the economic backlash, but are part of the cultural backlash. Now, in the midst of all of this, where should India go? Well, in Pax Indica, which is available here, India and the World of the 21st Century, published in 2012. Very reasonably uh, priced. Very reasonably priced. <laughs> but not very many copies, alas. <laughs> So we don't need to, to expend too much energy on commercial time. But the fact is that uh, I argued a case for India to do much more. I mean, the fact is, for the longest time after the Second World War, while the, inst the international institutions that Peter was saying are collapsing were being set up, um, India was a rule taker, uh, not a rule maker on the global stage. 
And as India and many other countries in the developing world emerging into independence after the Second World War realize, uh, you need a place at the table if you want to make a difference and protect your interests. Because in international affairs and in global geopolitics, you're either at the table or on the menu. And <laughs> some of us have felt we've been on the menu for long enough. And, and Pax Indica was part of, or perhaps uh, an isolated example of, an argument that India has a great deal to offer in crafting a new world order in which there will be more multipolarity, as, as, uh, as Peter mentioned, where we would have a more constructive and more egalitarian multilateralism, uh, not going from the, the Cold War's bipolarity to the brief unipolar a moment of the 90s and the early part of the first few years of the century, and then to some sort of G2 condominium uh, between America and China, as some around Hillary Clinton had fantasized a few years ago. That's not the kind of world that anybody in the developing world wants to see. We want to see one in which everyone's voice can be heard. And I argue that India has the capacity, the resources, the human resources, as well as the technological skills uh, and, and the means to actually make a difference in a whole lot of issues, from cyberspace to outer space, in which India has developed a significant credibility in world affairs and can help write the rules for all of that. Um, my thesis wasn't taken up by anybody, so that's either here or there. <laughs> uh, but it's, it's still relevant, and I've returned to it through the prism of the new world disorder in the new book, in which I do argue that India should stop punching below its weight, as it has been doing in international affairs, and should take the opportunity to actually make a real difference uh, in the world. So I, I want to tease out, in particular, this issue of the second backlash, the, the cultural backlash and anxiety that manifests itself through these huge political changes, the, the rise of China, the decline of the West, the relative rise of India. And I suppose, uh, could I turn to you, um, Tony, on this? And I mean, I know that your most recent book deals with themes of Aboriginal and indigenous justice. But before we get to that, could you give us a sense, simply as an Australian, as how these big picture changes are changing Australia's sense of itself as a country that has an Anglo-Saxon heritage but sees itself increasingly as, a, as an Asian nation? Well, firstly, I'd, I'd want to say um, I've never felt more out of my depth than I do now. I'm glad my mum's not here. Um, <laughs> if my mother was here, she'd be on, oh, no, he's going to, oh, she gets so embarrassed for me. But um, what I think, I mean, there are, I want to talk about the being part of Asia issue as, by telling a story. But one of the things that I think is interesting about, well, the, I think the, the regressive nativism of the um, present Australian government, and even in its relationship to Indigenous people, is that what... Um, governments like Australia don't understand and, and their insularity doesn't understand the dynamic internationalism that's going on amongst, say, Indigenous communities. So one of the things that we know that, are, that, is, that have changed for the better with social media, where Indigenous nations and groups around the world, for instance, can't get traction from their, from their national governments because of that regressiveness, they're making great alliances and compacts with other Indigenous nations and groups around the world. So I would say in Australia, a lot of Aboriginal people who want to get stuff done in regard to, say, climate, which is one of their, my interests, is that the connections that Aboriginal communities are making with Aboriginal and Indigenous groups around the world is really dynamic, so we forget that. 
I suppose the issue asked about being part of Asia, I could say so many things about um, where we're at now. And again, thinking about climate justice, um, we have a government that panics and acts, in my view, very in a very cruel way towards um, people wanting to come to this country or needing to flee to this country in, in relatively very low numbers when we consider the refugee situation around the world. And if anyone who works on climate justice got to speak to the Prime Minister, one thing would we'd say, well, in a very short time, in a sort of relative time of human history, there are going to be hundreds of thousands and many millions of people who are going to need a home, whether it be in a temporary nature or a permanent nature. And if we're a country who can't cope with a few thousand people wanting a home, how are we going to cope with those numbers? Because we can't turn away boats. We, we have to engage with the world. We're not an isolationist um, society any longer. I think what the problem is for Australia historically is we've never understood who we are in that sense. So not only thinking about our relationship with ourselves as Aboriginal people and, and a colonial society, the Australian Anglo society has never really understood itself in relationship to, to Asia. And any decisions that are made are often, of course, economic or political decisions. I'm much more interested in, in what I would call the sort of the, the human aspect, the story of, of who we are. And I did talk about this out the back, but it's always frustrated me that um, my great-grandfather, who um, came from the Punjab in the 1890s, he was here before Australia was born. There was no Australia in the 1890s. There were a series of colonies owned by the British. And because of Federation and the Immigration Act, the White Australia policy, when my great-grandfather wanted to take my great-grandmother back to the Punjab and introduce his children, his Australian-born children, to his family, he had to go through a humiliating process of what was called the Exemption Act so that when he came back to the newly-born Australia, which was a very infant country, he would not be stopped at the door as most other people of colour were. And the point I want to make there is that he came back to Australia. My great-grandfather and great-grandmother had five children. They had children and my, my great-aunts and uncles are part of that. I'm part of that community. So that all over Australia, the replication of that experience is of, is of a, a multi-ethnic, multicultural society, which we still have governments trying to, in a sense, catch up with. So when we think about multiculturalism in Australia, we think about it as a government policy, whereas we who live that, and in growing up in the inner city of Melbourne, it wasn't a policy, it was the culture of Australia. So we need to give more um, credibility to who we are than who we think we are. And the notion of who we think we are is very different and I think very narrow. And we have to overcome that. That's interesting. I mean, Peter, could I bring you in on this? It's, it's often said... Thank you. More, uh, more rounds of applause are good. It's often said <laughs> in the context of the Brexit debate in Britain that there are only two kinds of countries in Europe. There are small countries and there are countries that haven't realised yet that they are small. <laughs> I, 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 I presume... In a sense, there must be a similar process going on in Australia as, uh, in a sense, the reality of the new Asia emerges and the, the, the great beasts of China and India begin to take their rightful place. And this must do something quite profound to Australia's sense of national identity as well. I mean, I, 
I think you can, you can overdo the extent to which um, <clears throat> this debate about national identity is going to shape the way in which we position ourselves, you know, in the, in the region and beyond. Um, I mean, I, I think Australia, even though we use the language of multiculturalism, is at its core a very assimilationist culture. Uh, and I think Indigenous culture has uh, understood that uh, to its detriment for a very long time. Uh, and it remains, if you like, the centre of gravity of the way in which Australia thinks of its success as a multicultural society, namely that we welcome people from all over the world, but there is a very clear expectation that in coming to Australia, they will assimilate into the mainstream of Australian culture, however defined. I don't see that shifting very significantly over time. And I think this you know, debate that we have had on and off about whether we're part of Asia or not part of Asia, uh, in some ways is a bit of a dead end debate in my view. Um, you know, Australia has to come to grips with the fact that in relative terms, our weight in the Asian region is in some respects going to diminish. Um, 10 years ago, we could say that the Australian economy was bigger than all of the economies of Southeast Asia put together. Today, if you use purchasing power parity as, a, as a, a measure, the Indonesian economy is already bigger than the Australian economy. So uh, we are going to have to uh, adapt to a world in which uh, the influence of Asian countries, whether they're the big Asian countries like China and India, but also the countries of Southeast Asia is only going to grow. And that means we're going to have to be much more nimble in the way in which we deal with those relationships. And we're going to have to learn, I think, more adeptly to play to our, to our strengths. Uh, and some of our strengths will flow from this uh, combination of Australia as uh, an inheritor of, of Western institutions, but also as a country whose primary strategic and economic interests are going to be most pursued in a broadly Asian or Indo-Pacific environment. Before and, I, and can, I, can I just make yeah, one other point, um, James, and that is a lot of this sort of cultural dissonance that we are seeing globally um, also has, in my view, a psychological dimension to it which relate to the pace of change that all of us have experienced as we've moved towards a hyper-globalised uh, economic system and whether we move back from that into the future is a, is a, is, is a moot point. But, you know, um, there, there was a terrific book written quite some time ago by Eric Fromm called Fear of Freedom, which sought to explain why a country with the sophisticated culture that Germany had embraced Nazism as a political philosophy. And at the core of his argument was uh, that there was a sense of displacement in the German psyche that was caused by the history leading up to um, the rise of Nazism. And I, I think there is a psychological equivalence of that 
that we can see in many of our societies today, including in Australia, as our lives are changed and um, transformed by the push of technology and, uh, and globalization. So I just I want to get back to India, but I, I just wondered, Tony, if you wanted to, I mean, does what Peter said chime with your own sense of Australia's challenges and, and in a sense what that means for Australian multiculturalism and its history of tolerance? Yeah, well, listening to Peter, I, I was thinking of what has become a, um, I might even say a, an intellectual or psychological obsession with me. And that is, again, thinking about who we really are rather than who we think we are or the way we like to project ourselves. I think when we consider how Australia will see itself in relationship to Asia or globally, we do have to reassess who we really are. And until we do that, what we have instead of that is that what I, again, consider a fairly shallow and meaningless jingoism. So when um, recently Scott Morrison was at a you know, Pacific Forum, he talked about the mateship between Australia and these Pacific nations of which are currently facing a grave climate crisis of rising sea levels that is now, not in the future, and yet we have an Australian government refusing to have a proactive policy to deal with this and basically said to the Pacific Island ladies, oh, we're, we're all mates, we're a part of the same family. It's meaningless and it's offensive. So I'm interested in tangibles that make us think about who we are. So I don't know if anyone saw in the last few days there was a, a release of a new strategy by the, the National Australian Tourist Party, whatever the name they go under now, and they had nine core values that we need to promote mm. overseas about who we are, and they were cringeworthy for those, <laughs> for those jingoisms. So the fair go, I mean, tell someone on Manus Island you're getting a fair go. It's, it's pretty horrific. So, but one of the things that I'm interested in is to, this does flow into my international interest on climate as well, because if you look at countries that have good climate policy, including a renewables policy, they have a much more holistic view of people. So countries that have good renewables policy often have good policies on maternity leave. They have good policies on unemployment. They have good laws to protect the elderly. So climate is not seen as a policy decision. It's seen as part of your, your society. So when I think about those core values of who we are and how we value ourselves, I think, well, how do we feel about the amount of money that we pay people to exist on Newstart? How do we feel about the fact that our elderly who are now subject to you know, this Royal Commission into the aged care don't have any you know, tangible legal rights ascribed to them because of their situation? So I, 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 I think we need maybe immediate sort of shifts about who we are as a nation, but I'm also interested in do we have the patience to have a generational shift philosophically and politically and emotionally about who we are. And I, I, can't, I can't see a... I don't know a politician in the... I mean, Peter might know people from his old job. <laughs> I, I can't... This is, and this is something about Australia, and I, people could do their own test. I was at my daughter's house in London last year, 
and we said, okay, we're going to play a game. We can have any politician in Australia of any party, state or federal, and we will just let them become a prime minister. Don't worry about Bill Shorten or Scott Morrison. We'll pick someone of value, and we couldn't come up with anyone. <laughs> Maybe you can... <laughs> yes. Yeah, Penny Wong. She came up. She did get a vote off my daughter, Penny Wong. You, you, but, can, you, can, you can give Shashi a home soon. But I suppose, I suppose my, my point is that, and I'm sure there are people, but I think the value or the quality of politicians in Australia has reduced significantly. And I know it might be my side of politics, but if you look through the years of the Hawke-Keating administration, if they both had fallen over... There would have, I think there would have been half a dozen people in, the, in that Labor Party who could have stepped forward and be Prime Minister. I don't think you could possibly hope for that now in this country. Let me, so let me just take the conversation back to, to India, given the two polls that we're having, and to pick up, in a sense, Shashi, the, the theme that Peter was talking about, the, the pace of change and, and the way in which these global economic geopolitical shifts are affecting our sense of identity. I mean, in one sense, you might think if you were a, a young Indian at the moment, you would be filled with an extraordinary sense of self-confidence. You know, look, think of what you're going to see over the next 50 years as your country accedes, as opposed to we in the declining West. And yet you have written kind of persuasively on the, the oddity of the Hindu nationalism that is taking hold of India under Modi, which on the one hand does express a certain kind of self-confidence and pride in India, but on the other is very anxious and angry and insecure about India's place in the world. And I, I wonder, could, could you, for those who perhaps are, are less uh, familiar with this, give, give a kind of sense of how this issue um, of the pace of change and the anxiety it brings is playing out in India's dominant culture. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, by the way, it's interesting that you've got all three panelists have had great-grandparents born in India, but only one of us actually lives there and is trying to make a go of it. So there's, there's a challenge. But if you look at, at, at India today, in fact, I, I was very struck by Peter's comment about uh, Eric Fromm's uh, fear of freedom because... Uh, we've had, as you said, dizzying change. Uh, India has transformed itself dramatically in the 72 years since its independence. And in the last generation in particular, there's been the astonishingly rapid movement of IT and modern communications, a once protectionist economy becoming much more globalized, uh, dramatic changes in politics, in caste relations, in all sorts of uh, phenomena that in other societies could even have triggered off a revolution. But in India, somehow has been absorbed so far within, within the national consensus. Or so we thought. And then suddenly here we have, as of 2014, the rise of a party which has never subscribed to that national consensus uh, under a leader whose ideology is fundamentally different from what India has actually seen in office before. So, uh, you know, our nationalist movement uh, did not divide on ideological lines. When we were fighting for freedom from the British, it wasn't that India, uh, the nationalists, divided between Marxists and capitalists or liberals and socialists. It divided over a very simple principle. Should religion be the determinant of nationhood? And one set of people said, yes, it should be, and that was the idea of Pakistan, and they created a country in which one religion would dominate. Uh, and everybody else, led by Mahatma Gandhi, said, no, religion cannot determine our nationhood. Our nationhood embraces everybody. 
uh, 3,000, 4,000 years of recorded Indian civilization. We've had all these great influences from around the world. Every religion has a home here. And we have fought for the, for the freedom of all these people. And we will write a constitution to safeguard the equal rights of all these people. And this was the idea of India. And we celebrated it and lived it for seven decades. Uh, and, and because we were a very contentious but thriving democracy, it was possible for people like me to stand up and say, look, we have differences of caste, of creed, of color, of culture, of consonant, of conviction, of costume and custom. But we still rally around a consensus. And that consensus was on the simple principle that in a country like India, you don't really need to, to agree all the time, so long as you agree on the ground rules of how you will disagree. Now, that principle, those ground rules are for the first time being questioned by those in power. And uh, they have a very different vision of India. They see this as uh, a Hindu nation. They want to make it a Hindu rashtra and their vocabulary. They, um, they are, in many ways, uh, articulating an impatience with the inadequacy of democratic India to cope with, right. the, with the, the rapid forces of change you, you mentioned, James. And because uh, it's convenient to find scapegoats for failures, or if not failures, at least disappointments in terms of earlier aspirations. My big worry with this lot in power is that you will see both a nativist reassertion of a quote-unquote authentically Hindu ethos in what has so far thrived as a diverse, multi-ethnic, multi-religious country, and that you will also see perhaps uh, a dangerous willingness to dispense with elements of democracy. Uh, dissent is already being delegitimized in many ways. Um, there are various acid tests being promulgated by those in power. Uh, and as far as Hinduism is concerned, one of the reasons I wrote my book, Why I'm a Hindu, which is also published in Australia, uh, is <laughs> to argue Also available, that, very reasonable cost. There you are. <laughs> is to argue that the Hinduism, which I and I believe a majority of my co-religious have grown up, is not the Hindutva being preached by those in power in India today, the Hindu nationalism of Modi and people. That as a very proud Hindu, I, I enjoyed the fact that ours was this extraordinary religion which, which did not claim to be the only true religion of the world, that had enormous amount of scope for individual variations of worship. We have no pope, we have no imams issuing fatwas, we have no uh, uh, single holy book but several, we have no, uh, and we don't even have a Sunday, where every one of the seven days of the week can be yours to pick and choose which <laughs> gods you want to consecrate to and choose to worship. But can, so I, can I push that you, kind of can faith, I push you on that? How does, does that, it lend itself to the, how can a religion without fundamentals lend itself to fundamentalism? Because but that's what the so, ruling elements are doing. So, so powerful. So, uh, I mean, this gets at a, a, a complicated issue, but so powerful has the upsurge in Hindu nationalist identity been that it has had a very negative effect on your current political party, the, the Congress. And, and it struck me that in writing your book about Hinduism, in a sense, you seem to be saying that it was almost no longer possible for a party like the Congress to be purely secular, that, that you had to articulate a moderate vision of Hinduism to balance out the crazy vision of Hinduism, or all was lost. No, my, my argument was really that if you argue this issue in, in a deeply religious country uh, as a debate between believing Hindus on the one hand and godless secularists on the other, the godless secularists were going to lose, simply because secularism in India had never meant what it meant, say, in, in France. 
uh, instead of secularism being what your dictionary tells you it is, which is distancing yourself and the state and public life from, from religion, secularism in India actually meant the proliferation of religions. It was actually pluralism that the state was promoting. Secularism was the wrong word. It actually gave cash and subsidies and help to every religion uh, in India. Subsidized the Hajj, subsidized a pilgrimage to the Mansarovar Lake in, in Tibet, all of the sort of stuff. Every faith was given help by the state. So India actually stood for a certain vision of, um, of, of pluralism, which is now being contested in the name of, uh, of, of Hinduism as promoting a sort of uniformity rather than merely unity. In fact, uniformity or the attempts to promote uniformity could end up destroying unity, which is something that some people in power haven't been able to realize. So when I said what I said, I was saying, look, let's just, so far we've practiced Hinduism as many of us Hindus in secular liberal parties have done without making a show and, show and tell of it because it was just who we were in our private lives and nothing to do with our public life. But now that people have injected a distorted version of Hinduism into public life, we owe it to ourselves and to our faith to stand up and say, hey, hey, we're Hindus too, but we're not that kind of Hindu. And that's why I, I wrote the book uh, I did. I mean, P Peter, you lived in Delhi. You observe India closely. I mean, I wonder if you had thoughts on this, perhaps the extent to which nationalism in a country like India, potentially China as well, is a, is a stabilizing or destabilizing force. I, I mean, what did you observe of the upsurge of the changing nature of nationalism in a country like India? Well, I think nationalism can be both. It can be a stabilizing and a destabilizing force. Um, I mean, I don't want to get into a commentary on the, the political debate in India uh, across the political divide, but what I would say is that the secular, liberal, democratic character of India is absolutely fundamental to the ability of countries like Australia to develop a deep partnership with India. And if India were to significantly stray from uh, that character, I think it would not just diminish India as a country and diminish the prospects for India, but it would make India a much less attractive strategic partner for, uh, for Australia. And sitting behind that judgment is, um, I think, a sense that values in geopolitics are going to become much more closely entwined uh, over the next little while. Um, and you can see this in that US-China fault line because ultimately for a country like Australia, what is it about China's strategic ambitions that make us uncomfortable? And if you think that through, it is the character of the Chinese system. Exactly. So what makes us uncomfortable is the idea that a liberal democracy in the United States, and notwithstanding its current, um, its current wobbles, uh, the United States is a liberal democracy, would be displaced by a one-party authoritarian system. And I think that's a, a deeply uncomfortable thought for Australia. I suspect it's a deeply uncomfortable thought for India, as it is for uh, many other countries, including, including Japan. So... Um, to the extent that this is, a, this is a, a debate or a struggle for the soul of India, it actually has consequences well beyond uh, India's it's borders. A, 
So, Tony, before we open it up to the, the audience, I mean, in a sense, we've been having a conversation about the way a couple of big macro changes are affecting our view of ourselves. One of those was economic globalization, and another was a combination of cultural globalization and people movement. But in a sense, while economic globalization is receding, you might think or you may fear that, that what is coming down the track with climate change and the climate crisis could end up having an even more profound and disruptive effect between winners and losers within countries, mm. between nations. I mean, could you, as a, as a rather pessimistic note on which to end our own part of the conversation, I'm sketch good, out good how at, you think I'm this is going pessimism. to work? Um, I'm very good at pessimism. <laughs> well, I think that there's something clearly related to what's been said, and that is that when you think of, well, and Peter said, you know, nationalism to the extent to what it could be, positive or negative, but say in relationship to thinking about it as, as looking inward, which is happening, I think, around the globe, there are, well, there's one issue, and that is that um, climate change can't be dealt with as, a, as a, a local issue. It has to be dealt with as a global, international issue. And one of the things we're finding at the moment is that, that countries are sort of being sort of defensive and nationalistic about why, why should we do anything? India's not doing enough or China's not doing enough. So we're using our sense of who we are and, and a defensive view of the world, which creates inertia of people doing nothing. So the idea of self-interest doesn't fit with a global um, policy on climate change. It just doesn't fit. You can't have a self-interest. You got to have a. You must have a common interest. So that's a real challenge when you think of the way of yeah, Western democracies are functioning at the moment, let alone other countries. In response to that, not to be to be too pessimistic, it's one of the reasons though. Rather than say, well, we can't do anything, which is what some countries say, you just have to get on and do stuff, whether you're doing it at a local level, whether you're linking up with other groups internationally, it's vital to do that. The other thing, and I'd point um, to a book called, a book called Slow Violence, um, Environmentalism and the Poor, um, by a guy called Rob Nixon. Rob Nixon makes the, the, I suppose, the chilling point in some way is that rather than think of an, an apocalypse, apocalyptic narrative, you know, the end of the world, which is not going to happen by 2050, as my, my daughter keeps telling me, and Brad Pitt is not going to come and rescue us in some sort of weird spaceship. <laughs> What's going to happen in 2050 is that the world is going to change very much. It's going to change environmentally, ecologically, politically, and economically, all of those things. And if we don't find a way of, of dealing with this issue as a, a global community, People are going, what Nixon would say is the world's not going to end. It's just going to be a much more difficult world to live in. And what will happen is the people who are now poor and marginalised will be more marginalised, will be poor and will suffer greatly. The whole notion we've got to be a bit careful of is when we say we're all in the same boat, in the sense we're all going to be affected by climate change, we are in the long term. But now we're talking about there are people who don't have boats. Some people have boats, some people don't have boats. Some people can shore up their defences for the next 50 years. The people who will suffer and are suffering now are people who are already people that we've pushed to the margins, you know, people who are not white, people who are not Western. So unless we find a way to overcome our defensiveness and our insulation, the outcome for, for the, the global community is going to be catastrophic. Very good. Right. Thank you for listening to Jepper Bites. 
This podcast is produced by Launchora, a storytelling and creative learning platform, in association with Teamwork Arts, the producers of the Jeopardy Literature Festival. If you haven't already, do subscribe to our show wherever you're listening to this podcast. Thank you.